Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. Today, we're talking to Betsy West and Julie Cohen, the directors of the documentary, My Name is Polly Murray. This is a documentary about a figure who probably should be known better in American history, who pioneered legal theories around integration, around women's rights, a person who tested the boundaries of race, of gender. This documentary, which I originally saw at Sundance in 2021, was a real eye-opener for me because I had never heard of Polly Murray before watching it. And I think it's a testament to the filmmakers that they present Polly in all Polly's breadth. Really a fascinating person who time and again overcame obstacles, whether in academia or in the legal profession, to accomplish great things. It is kind of a crime that as much as we know about other civil rights leaders and women's rights leaders, many of us have never heard of Polly Murray. And I think this documentary certainly will go a long way toward correcting that. And it's also a fascinating documentary about a sprawling life. Somebody who we see in the film as a vagabond, as a student, as an attorney in a high-powered law firm, as a professor at Brandeis, and then finally as an Episcopalian minister. And just to see that change of clothing from the leather jacket and boots, the vagabond to the priestly robes of the Episcopal minister, it's an amazing life. Another aspect of the documentary that's extremely rewarding is what it reveals about Polly's private life, which I think speaks to a larger narrative. So for instance, Polly's struggle with polysexuality is something that we learn about through the Polly Murray archives, which the filmmakers spend a lot of time focusing on and is a rich source of information and really insight as well. The film is also extremely rewarding because of what it shares about Polly's private life, which does directly relate to the broader narrative. For instance, Polly's struggle with Polly's sexuality is covered. The filmmakers go into Polly's archives and show the letters that Polly wrote to Polly's doctor seeking hormone treatments. This is someone who probably would be considered gender nonconforming, and we do have a lot of great contemporary interviews with scholars and others who talk about Polly's sexuality and relate it to the times back then and to now. And so for this reason and many reasons, this is a documentary that goes across the ages and I think speaks to issues that we're still grappling with as a society. Betsy West and Julie Cohen have directed three feature documentaries together. RBG, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 2019, and two films in 2021. My Name is Polly Murray, which debuted at Sundance in 2021 and was picked up by Amazon, and Julia, which chronicles the life of Julia Child. That film will be released by Sony Pictures Classics in theaters on November 12th. Prior to making documentaries, Betsy was a producer and executive at ABC News, where she received 21 Emmys and two DuPont Columbia Awards for her work on Nightline and Primetime Live and, and on Turning Point. And she was also senior VP at CBS News from 98 to 2005, where she oversaw both 60 Minutes and 48 Hours. Prior to teaming up with Betsy, Julie directed numerous documentaries, including The Sturgeon Queens, which screened at the 2015 Berlin International Film Festival, and 60 other festivals, 
winning 10 Audience Choice Awards. She also directed American Veteran and I Love to Sing, among other films. She also produced eight programs of Dateline NBC. So both Betsy and Julie bring a strong background in broadcast journalism to their work as independent documentary filmmakers. Coming up next is our conversation with Betsy West and Julie Cohen. I'm Ken Jacobson, and I want to welcome Betsy West and Julie Cohen to Top Docs. Hi, Betsy. Hi, Julie. Hi, Ken. Hi, Ken. Great to have you here, and congratulations on My Name is Polly Murray. Wonderful film, and an important film, for sure. Polly Murray is one of the most significant people of the 20th century. Civil rights, women's rights, poetry, memoirs, a spiritual pioneer. And when you hear Polly's story, I think you'll be amazed and maybe angry that no one taught you Polly Murray's name. I want to ask this question of both of you. Why do you make documentary films? Julie, could you go first? It's just a great way to share a story in a way that feels like more than so many other formats for storytelling. Like reading an article is amazing, but there's something about being able to hear someone's story in their own words and see their own images that is, we think an amazing experience for the viewer, but also an incredible experience for the filmmakers for putting stories together. And Betsy, how about you? Why do you make documentaries? I think I make documentaries because I'm a curious or some people might say a nosy person and I really like to tell stories and as Julie says visual stories ones that can be emotional and really bring you in and take you on a ride. Many of us myself included know you from your previous film RBG which was Academy Award nominated and seen by many, many folks in theaters and streaming and on television. How did RBG prepare you to make this film? Well, RBG sort of led us to this film in a way because it was RBG who gave credit to Polly Murray for coming up with the foundational legal idea of fighting for women's rights by using the 14th Amendment, something that people just weren't doing in the 1960s when Polly Murray wrote several papers about this. That's the primary thanks to Justice Ginsburg. And I guess it brought Julie and I together as partners and we thought RBG worked out well. And we have an opportunity now to tell this story of someone not as well known, but who really deserves recognition. And we felt very grateful that participant media jumped in very quickly on the project. And we should mention our executive producer, Diane Weirman, who sadly passed away this month. That is just so tragic. Diane, who was a legendary figure in the doc world from Sundance and Inconvenient Truth and all the other films that she shepherded. And when I say shepherd, I mean that she was so critical, not only in recognizing the potential of this story, but in helping guide us along the way. And, you know, just so grateful to her and for the opportunity to make the film. To be honest, we knew we were in sort of an unusual position after RBG was released as a 
commercially successful documentary box office wise. It put us in a position we hadn't been before in filmmakers where we had the opportunity to maybe pitch something and get it funded that was a biographical film that wasn't about a household name. And because of participant and not just their interest, but their whole like raison d'etre of wanting to make films that matter, like Diane and our other exact Elise Perlstein, just immediately Betsy and Talia and I all went in together and, and pitched this. And they weren't like, but we don't get it. We hadn't heard of Pauli Murray, although they hadn't heard of Pauli Murray. But we said that's kind of part of the story and part of why we want to tell it. And they got that immediately. It was definitely a challenging story to tell in many ways, but it felt really special to be listening to audio recordings and seeing videos in some cases that had never been digitized before and hearing this person speaking to us through the decades, like eager to get a message out and thinking like, wow, that's a lot of responsibility, but also like a real thrill to be able to be part of a project like that. Just to clarify, was it Justice Ginsburg who turned you on to Polly Murray or had you heard of Polly before? No, I mean, it was through our research into Justice Ginsburg. It was not that she said, oh, why don't you guys make a film about Polly Murray? No, she wasn't our story consultant. But when we were reading about her, we read about this person, Polly Murray, and put it aside until after the film. And then when we researched and discovered all of Polly's other accomplishments, that's when we decided to do the film and reached out to Justice Ginsburg, who was our first interview actually for the film. She was happy that we were doing it. But we were not familiar with Polly Murray before doing the research towards the end of RBG, where we saw this name at the bottom of the brief and thought like, wow, what an amazing contribution to this one field of law. And it wasn't until after RBG came out that we came to understand, no, it's not just women's rights law that Polly played a huge role in. It's also civil rights. It was also the labor movement. It was also all kinds of activism and the writing and the Episcopal priesthood. I want to say also, though, when we did the research, it wasn't hard to find out about Polly Murray because there have been a number of scholars, mainly African-American women scholars and others, mostly women, who have been writing about Polly Murray for the past couple of decades and pointing out Polly's contributions. So we had uh, a lot of research to go on from those academics, including Patricia Bell Scott, who became our consultant. And then, of course, there's the Polly Murray Archive, which is just an extraordinary resource for academics and students and documentary filmmakers, because Polly left 141 boxes of material, papers, letters, diaries, photographs, many, many photographs. Polly was carrying around a camera in the 1930s when Polly was hopping onto the rails and riding across the country, and also a few videotapes as well. So it's thanks to Polly that we were really able to do this. Before we go any further, I did want to address this question of the proper pronouns to use with Polly. It's something you address in the film and different people have a different take on it. And then there's the question of what pronouns Polly Murray would want used. Where do you come down on that? And, and what pronouns should we actually use in this interview? Yeah, there is no 
way to answer one of the questions, which is what pronouns might Polly have preferred because the full range of options actually didn't exist during Polly's lifetime. As you saw in the film, those who knew Polly as a family member or friend or colleague in life used she, her pro pronouns. Many trans and non-binary people today use they, them, or um, in some cases, e even he, him. We have gone with another option that you might notice as we're doing this interview. We really try to just call Polly Polly because that's a name that Polly chose. Polly's given name was Anna Pauline and Polly quite early in life, I think it was around college, chose the name Polly and really stuck with it for life. So we know that feels good. And one of our trans experts in the film, the ACLU trans rights lawyer, Chase Strangio, mentioned to us when we were talking off camera about this issue, he said some trans people just use their name as their pronoun. And we were like, that sounds right for Polly because we know we're not saying something that Polly wouldn't have loved. At the same time, we don't want to create a situation that feels like nails on a chalkboard for a modern day trans person who's coming to the film connecting to Polly and really wanting to sense that connection and representation. And then, you know, all the she and her can feel pretty painful. That makes sense to me. And I think I will try to stick with Polly throughout the course of our talk. And it also just seems like a very open way to address the question that invites all people to engage with Polly Murray. Betsy, why was it important for you to make this film? When we discovered the story, we were so blown away and frankly, just <laughs> amazed that Polly isn't in our history textbooks that people don't know about Polly. So we felt that it would be, you know, wonderful <laughs> to give Polly Polly's due. Frankly, we didn't know if we would be able to make the film until we discovered the resources in the archive and also discovered some extraordinary people who knew Polly and had just such a personal connection to Polly that we felt that we would be able to bring Polly to life with the help of Polly's own words and tell the story as much as possible from Polly's perspective. There's been a lot of discussion in the documentary community in recent years about who's the right person to tell somebody's story. What's your take on whether you two are quote unquote the right people to tell Polly's story? Julie, can I throw it to you? It's a, not an easy question. It's one that we grappled with somewhat. To be completely honest, it's something that we may have grappled with a little bit more a few years later. We weren't part of like a competition of different people, you know, competing to tell Polly's story. We realized this could be a meaningful, worthwhile story to tell. As I said before, we realized we had an opportunity because of the connection to our previous film that we might be able to help get the story told. And our first move was to make sure that the team telling the story, not just, oh, we'll do a few diversity hires, but like the core creative team, we're here as the directors, as also the spokespeople for the film, because after the film is out, we're out. But truthfully, the film's producer and the film's editor are as deeply involved in creative and editorial decisions, both Black Americans in this case, as Betsy and I were. So it was really a team effort to tell this story. The storytelling part didn't feel uncomfortable. It's more the spokesperson act, ask, you know, are we the right people to be spokespeople for Polly Murray's story? And I think in that case, not necessarily, but like as far as 
the skills of working with the team to put a documentary together. That is something that we do across all manner of race and gender. Our approach to this story, as I said before, was as much as possible to tell the story in Polly's voice. And we were so lucky to have these audio recordings that would allow us to do that. Of course, there's editing involved. We're making choices. Polly had an extraordinary, expansive life with so many chapters. We couldn't tell every single one of those chapters, but we really tried to pick the most important stories that Polly could tell in Polly's own voice. It also seems like a conscious choice in terms of who you chose to put on screen and interview about Polly Murray. It's a very inclusive group involving trans people, gender nonconforming people, African-Americans. So I would assume that played a role in choosing the people that you interviewed. Yes, but I have to say these were all people who had a deep connection to Polly. You know, whether or not they were related to Polly, they knew Polly, colleagues of Polly's, friends of Polly's, students of Polly's, and in some cases, biographers, people who had studied Polly, but it just so happened that, yes, they were uh, a pretty diverse group. And we did make an effort to talk to LGBTQ people because Polly has become a beacon for that community and to make that connection. Because, of course, when Polly was writing to doctors asking for help because of the feeling that Polly was a man, this was a very lonely and private exercise on Polly's part and really a struggle with no community. And now there is a community and that community is extremely interested in and engaged with Polly and affected by Polly's story. So, you know, we wanted to include those people as well. As you mentioned, Polly's life is extraordinarily sprawling over the decades and across many issues. How did you figure out a spine for the story. Obviously, it's told mostly chronologically, but I'm wondering if you relied heavily on Polly's memoir, Song in a Weary Throat, to give you direction in telling Polly's life story. The memoir was a big part of it, although truthfully, I've definitely noticed this a lot in films where we're using a lot of audio and a lot of audio sources of the same person speaking and where we have a talented editor. That was true both here and in RBG, where people feel like everything that they're listening to is the autobiography, when actually you're listening to about 30 different audio recordings, one of which was the autobiography interwoven. We're not making a big effort to tell you when you're hearing a conversation versus uh, Polly reading the autobiography. I think in, in our mind, the spine was kind of Polly's way ahead of the curve innovations. And that's why we tried to create those artistic moments going from archival footage to a created work of art and then back to the archival footage where we often have a graphic saying 15 years before Rosa Parks uh, arrest or six years before Justice Ginsburg brings her first gender equality case. In, in our mind, one of the main narrative devices was to try to connect Polly's story, which we understood was going to be new to a lot of our audience, to pieces of American history that were more familiar. Or in some cases, we learned a lot about American history beyond learning Polly's story, like the 1943 Detroit, like so-called race riot, which was actually, you know, white civilians and, and, and police officers murdering 17 black men. I believe they were all male. 
that stunning episode from American mid-century history that prompted Polly to write an incredible poem, sort of trying to ground it in things that were going on and context was a big spine, spine thing. Those groundbreaking moments were the key. And then we had to make a few tough decisions of things that we couldn't include because Polly's life is so expansive, does take so many extraordinary twists and turns. So our feeling is this is like an introduction to Polly Murray. We hope people will go out and read Polly's autobiography, read some of the biographies about Polly and immerse themselves because it's really, really an extraordinary life. If the film was just like a list of Polly's accomplishments, it would be like five hours long. There's so much that we left out of this film. It, it's, you know, kind of stunning, but we wanted it to not just be what Polly accomplished, but also a fair amount of this person as a human being and the personal story. I mean, you know, the, the personal is political is a big tenet of feminism. And I think we consider ourselves feminist filmmakers. So telling Polly's family history, going back to childhood, which was so moving and so foundational for what Polly did. And then later telling the sad thwarted love story, followed by the beautiful romantic life partnership that Polly formed with Irene Barlow. Like we really wanted those elements to be part of it, not just this public figure and what Polly accomplished, but also like the, the deeper matters of the heart and soul. The personal really came through for me in the opening. We really like to talk about openings because they're often the most challenging for filmmakers. The first time I think we see Polly is in the black and white video footage when Polly's trying to get her dog to sit and to get out of the shot. It's a lovely moment. It's fun. It's funny. It's that like irresistible, grainy, black and white video footage. Why did you decide to start the film with that? And, and tell us more about that footage. Julie can tell the story of how the footage was found, but just in terms of the decision, once we found it, we just were so taken with Polly's whole presence in that video the smile, the relationship with the beloved dog, the typing on the typewriter, which, you know, Polly's grandniece had told us about how she was always typing and there she is, turns and does it. That video, despite all of the hits and everything else, was a godsend. It was our editor, Sinque Northern, who did two versions of the open, one who had Roy the dog being reprimanded in it and the other one didn't. And we just loved it. With the, the one with the dog, because we just, we felt that it's like, here's a person where you can feel Polly's personality, that smile, the theme of the dog does in relationship with the dog does come through a little bit. So that's why we started that way. Now, Julie can tell you how we found that footage was kind of a cool story. Some of these decisions are just like personal decisions of the heart. And it happens that Betsy and Talea and I are all dog people. Sinkway uh, actually, we know is a cat person because we always do at our editors on Zoom and like his cats would be like jumping up behind him. Seeing someone in their relationship with their pet helps you connect. And I think we all felt that the actual finding of that video. So Polly's archive was all stored in uh, Schlesinger Library uh, at Harvard, which is like one of the top two preeminent women's history archives in, in the country. A, a lot of the archive is online. And at one point I had lost the link that led you to just the Pauli Murray connection. So I just went into Schlesinger's general thing and just typed in like 
Polly Murray just to try to get back to it. And I saw a list of things, some of which were the archive, and one of which said, oh, video by Lynn Conroy in the Lynn Conroy collection. And Lynn Conroy, as it happened, was a woman who had been in her 20s in the late 70s and had interviewed on video Polly Murray for a project that she was doing to develop curriculum for elementary school students about women writers. And she had gone and interviewed Polly and actually even videotaped some sermons and interviewed Polly for like an hour. She had actually done tons of these interviews. We later spoke to her to get her permission to even have it digitized. And she just thought this person was extraordinary and so had taken it to Schlesinger herself, coincidentally, not realizing this is where the Polly Murray archive was. We love that you saw Polly typing in it and going through photo albums that really felt like it gave you something to see Polly at a time in Polly's life when there was like a lot more joy and happiness and contentment than there had been earlier. You, you interview a number of scholars uh, who've written books about Polly, but you include others as well. And then there's Polly's family member, Polly's grandniece, Karen Ross. She has a really strong presence on camera and honestly just doesn't seem like quote unquote, the kind of person you often see in documentaries like this. She's got tattoos. She doesn't seem like a professional interviewee. Her comments feel very fresh and personal, and yet they're also very scholarly. We were in touch with Karen early on in this project because obviously we needed the permission of the Polly Murray Foundation to use the material in the archive. And that's what Karen is in charge of. So initially, Talea went down and met with Karen and looked at some of the material that was there. And then we realized that Karen really had a strong connection with Polly, had known Polly from early childhood, and yet didn't really know the full story, as you see unfold in the film. And in a way, Karen became like a, a substitute for the viewer learning more about Polly. Karen knew that Polly was important, knew Polly had become an Episcopal priest, was a lawyer of some accomplishment, but didn't, you know, understand totally the scope of what Polly had done. We asked Karen if she would come up to Schlesinger and talk to us and take a look at some more of the material there, and she was happy to do it. She was just a fantastic interview because I think her insight into Polly and especially into Polly's transformation to more spiritual side, which happened, you know, when Karen was in her 20s, I think, and known Polly as this kind of tough, opinionated, feisty person who then surprised everybody, and I guess the family as well, by deciding to become an Episcopal priest, to go to seminary. Karen observed on how Polly was changed, transformed by that. That was just an incredible revelation and a, for us a, a wonderful moment in the film and the trajectory of Polly's life that someone who was so accomplished in so many areas was always still searching, personally searching, and found something in the church and in spirituality, and also returning to writing with the autobiography that was fulfilling for Polly. It was really an emotional day, Karen, to be yeah. at the to be at Polly's archives, and 
I feel like it was pretty emotional for Betsy and Talia and me also. Shooting is always so stressful. So sometimes you don't like step back and realize, oh, this is actually really special to be here because you're so worried about all the things that you worry about when you're on shoot. But that was a day that it, I felt like we were catching each other's eye and thinking like, wow, this is really, um, especially when we were down in that basement where you see the full archive and then the rows of Polly stuff. And it just felt, wow, this is a really special place. And it's so cool that we're here with Polly's grannies. When watching the film and now more so talking to you both, it's so clear to me in a way, maybe it never has been before, how important the personal story is to the public figure, to the political figure. And I think you've interwoven those two elements so effectively in the film. Karen at one point says, Aunt Pauline allowed Aunt Polly to be exactly who Polly needed to be. And she's referring to one of Polly's aunts who Polly lived with and who basically took Polly under her wing and raised Polly. Would there have been a Polly Murray without Pauline, do you think? I think that's a great question because if there hadn't been that strong support early on in Polly's life, I'm not sure that Polly could have overcome all of the disadvantages that Polly had growing up in the Jim Crow South in a family that certainly was not well off on the edge of impoverished and yet loving, supportive, encouraging Polly to read at an early age. And then when it became obvious that Polly, you know, was kind of what you might say a tomboy in childhood. Okay, that's one thing. But Aunt Pauline supported Polly in what was otherwise a, a private struggle with gender identity and even referred to Polly as my boy girl, which is like extraordinary that this person was doing this early on in the 20th century when we didn't have a language. So that was Aunt Pauline's language, boy girl. So to to have not only this foundational relationship from the age of three, when Polly was effectively adopted by Aunt Pauline, as both of Polly's parents, mother had died, father was in an institution and ultimately was murdered. It was Aunt Pauline who provided such a strong basis for Polly's life. And they had a close relationship until Aunt Pauline died. I think that Polly really relied on her. I felt a certain kinship because my grandmother is named Pauline and she raised her children alone. So another strong Pauline in the world. It also introduces, I think, the importance of education in Polly's life. And this is a running theme in the film. I think you consciously work it in literally and visually by including footage of several college lectures and discussion classes in which Polly was the subject. So we see Professor Brittany Cooper's class, and then there's a discussion class at what is now Polly Murray College at Yale. Why did you want to include the act of teaching and learning in the film? As you say, education is a theme of the film, going all the way to the time when Polly's four and Aunt Pauline is taking uh, the child into classrooms that are above Polly's grade level. And Polly's like surreptitiously by osmosis is just learning to read because the older students are learning to read to how formative Polly's education at Hunter College, Howard University, Berkeley Law School and Yale Law School was to Polly as an educator at Brandeis and the impact that Polly had on students. 
But as far as including some modern day education of Polly, of the Polly story, first of all, we wanted to get out some basic facts that needed to happen without our audience feeling like they were being like lectured to by our interview subjects. Better for them to actually watch teaching and learn teaching unfolding. And as Betsy said, again, the students that are being taught are a proxy for the audience. Oh, let's all learn about Polly Murray because it's like a enthralling experience. But also we, I feel like, wanted to place our film in a context of a movement that is happening, of people educating about Polly Murray. Like, we are not the discoverers of Polly Murray, nor are we the first to be educating about Polly Murray. It's just the documentary film is a high-profile format that allows you to be in a situation where Amazon Studios is putting up billboards with the name of the subject. Particularly over the past four or five years, there's been a real movement to tell Polly's story. More teachers from high school to college and graduate school courses. We've met so many professors who are teaching Polly Murray courses in, in college and, and law school recently. All of Polly's books, including the book of poetry, have been reissued within the past three or four years. There have been two major biographies written about Polly Murray, like, you know, The New Yorker did a profile. There's a lot going on in the Polly Murray world, and we didn't want to shy away from that. We wanted to show it happening and just we're trying to join in, and then we hope it keeps going from there. It definitely seems like recognition, public recognition and the lack of it, and then legacy are two really important themes in the film. And as you've just described, it does seem like Polly's legacy is evolving from working behind the scenes and in relative obscurity on hugely important civil rights and women's rights issues to Polly's gradual recognition to now with the film being on Amazon Prime and the circle has widened greatly of those who know Polly's life and work. Do you have any other thoughts about this whole concept of legacy? It seems like that was something that was in your minds as you were making the film. We think it was in Polly's mind that Polly saved 140 boxes worth of material. I mean, this is a person who had a pretty difficult life for the first couple decades of adulthood and yet carried around all of this material from small apartment to small apartment. Polly was moving a lot and yet saved everything. And it, it feels like a really deliberate act that Polly was thinking, perhaps my contemporaries may not understand what it is I've done, but it has importance. And perhaps people in the future will want to know about my contributions. And that seems to me Polly's legacy to be able to reach out across the generations and tell the story of what Polly did. One other thing is adding to the recognition of Polly when we were at the Schlesinger Library, I also remember so vividly just talking to the curator about the collection. There's a portrait of Polly Murray, a beautiful portrait in the reading room of the Schlesinger Library. I just said something to the curator about people accessing the archive and she said, oh yes, the Polly Murray archive is now our most requested 
Now, this is in a library which contains the work of some of the most famous American women in history, whether or not it's Betty Friedan and Susan B. Anthony letters. I mean, we're talking about just the panoply of American women. I think it's a signal of how a younger generation is really identifying with Polly's story. Another relationship covered in the film that's fascinating and really unique is the one Polly had with Eleanor Roosevelt. How pivotal would you say that relationship was in Polly's development as a key player in the civil rights and women's rights movements? I think it was very important. It's actually sort of a reminder of another when you're saying those we thank for the film. Patricia Bell Scott, who wrote a book called The Firebrand and the First Lady that's about that relationship and came on as our consulting producer in the film, is someone who has been doing research on that subject for, I think, about 20 years. I think she would tell you, yes, Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor's role in Polly's life had an influence on Polly, but truthfully, it may have even had a bigger influence on Eleanor Roosevelt. Polly had a willingness and a talent to connect with people who might want to engage on the issues that Polly cared about and chose like not to be intimidated should that person happen to be the first lady or a senior partner at a very prestigious New York law firm. That's how Polly got the job. But Paul Weiss was forming a relationship with Lloyd Garrison. Polly was friends with James Baldwin, as we mentioned in the film, also Langston Hughes. There actually is some correspondence in the archives between Polly and Martin Luther King that are about like edits of manuscripts of books being written. Like Polly's willingness to reach out to famous people of the day, but then write such a killer letter that the person would respond was just an ongoing theme throughout life. Eleanor Roosevelt was an intellectually engaged person who just decided, I want to engage with this mind. And they managed to have this ongoing friendship, even while Polly was often like completely criticizing FDR while he was still president. There just aren't many people that would do that. There's just so much integrity there. I think it's also quite impressive that Eleanor Roosevelt continued to want to have that engagement and relationship, even while Polly is criticizing FDR. Intersectionality is obviously a huge part of Polly's story. And yet that term isn't even, you know, coined until I think 1989 after Polly died. How did you approach this issue of illuminating Polly and her relationship to intersectionality during the time when the concept hadn't even been defined? The, the whole thing is very generic to Polly's story because Polly, as narrated in the autobiography and elsewhere, arrives at Howard Law School eager to learn from the brightest civil rights lawyers in the country how to fight discrimination against African-Americans and comes head on into sex discrimination. And I think from what Polly says, completely taken aback by it. The attitude of, you know, what are you doing here anyway? What are women doing here in law school? Polly says the professors were not calling on Polly. There was a legal society that was men only. And when Polly pointed out that Polly was the only woman in the class, the professor said, you could start your own legal society with a membership of one. It was extraordinary. And But Polly got through it by as often happened with Polly, excelling and being the best student in the class. And okay, now they're going to recognize Polly. Now they're going to call on Polly. But it was 
Pauli, who came up with, the, you could say, the precursor to intersectionality, the idea of Jane Crow. Hey, I've experienced Jim Crow. I grew up in the Jim Crow South. But what is this for African-American women who have this double burden? And I think it's absolutely a revolutionary idea to have had so early on and to, that, that Polly carried through. I mean, Polly was a dedicated feminist, but also was critical of the feminist movement, critical of the fact that it was not really inclusive for African-American women, that it wasn't thinking about the needs, the different needs of African-American women in the same way that Polly was critical of the civil rights movement when it was being sexist and ignoring the leaders within who were women in the civil rights movement. Yeah, it was really deliberate that we had the opening soundbite of the film. You're hearing it while you're seeing that video of, of Polly Murray. It actually came from testimony that Polly gave before the New York City Human Rights Commission in 1970, where Polly's saying, as a way of introducing like a self-introduction, like, hey, I'm someone who my whole life has str struggled with these societal views that women are inherently inferior to men and blacks are inherently inferior to whites. And it wasn't just like, these are the obstacles I face. It was like, this is like by way of introduction, like that's who I am. Someone who's has to, had to deal with these two compounding obstacles every moment of my life. And yet look how much Polly achieved, even with those obstacles. And of course, the thing that Polly wasn't speaking loudly about at the time was in addition to that, being someone whose life partner wasn't someone that Polly could talk about publicly, and also someone struggling with being seen by a woman, to the extent that Polly's even, you know, as early as before 1940 is asking for testosterone treatment, something that like, may have in fact worked, but what wasn't understood, uh, appreciated by medicine and exploratory surgery, those three obstacles and, and then looking at that and everything Polly achieved with those, I, I mean, it's pretty inspiring, I think. Absolutely. And the, the film Love Story between Polly and Irene Barlow makes the film that much richer and Polly's story that much more three-dimensional. The biggest challenge was in trying to represent Rini Barlow, frankly, because even though it's very clear from the letters that they had this partnership, that they were life partners, it was like a marriage, it was not public. So we didn't have photos of the two of them together. We really only had two photos of Irene Barlow, and we spoke to Irene's niece, who knew that Irene had a friend, Polly Murray, and had visited Polly Murray, I think when she was like 10 or 11 years old, was aware of the fact that Irene, who was white, had a friend who was African-American. I think that's what stuck in her mind because it was unusual at the time, but no inkling that this was a romantic relationship. The Brandeis students we interviewed we had no idea if they would know about this. And of course, they totally did and completely understood the nature of the relationship, even though it was never discussed. It was just understood that Polly and Irene were life partners. Through their interview and then through use of the letters, you know, the affection that you see that comes through. They're not steamy love letters, but they're just showing that the two of them really 
rely on each other and care so much about each other and the pet nicknames and it's lovely. Those all letters to Irene. They were both. They were both back and forth. Polly, again, uh, it was a decision to make, like, we're going to include this in the film, even though this wasn't something that Polly was public about in life. And part of the guiding principle was these were included in the archive and not just Irene's letters to Polly. Polly made copies, not of all, but of a number. So often you could feel the correspondence going back and forth because you've got a, had a carbon copy of Polly's letter out and then the letter that was returned from Irene because they were both traveling a fair amount. They were never, they spent long stretches of time in one another's living in one another's apartments, but they always had separate residences. The good news for us was there was a lot of correspondence where you could feel the affection coming through, particularly in those nicknames and just the mundaneness of it all. Like, oh, I'm reading the times and listening to Brahms and thinking of you. It just felt like very relatable and uh, romantic. Definitely. I think your composer did a great job of extending that for our benefit. (laughs) I wanted to get back to the archives for a second and the scholar Rosalind Rosenberg. You have a a really interesting soundbite with her. She says, I hesitated about including Murray's gender struggles in my biography. Other scholars said that was her private life, but I came to believe that you couldn't really understand why Polly was so far ahead of her time without understanding her sense of in-betweenness, which made Polly increasingly critical of boundaries and that allowed Polly to make one of the most important ideas in the 20th century, that the categories of race and gender are arbitrary and not a basis for discrimination. So it's really interesting in a film to have a scholar talk about their own hesitancy about including personal sexual life of someone they've studied and written about. How did you cross that bridge yourselves as filmmakers? I think Julie touched on this a bit. It seemed pretty clear that Polly's archive was curated and that what Polly left in there was meant for people to see. And we know that because there were pages ripped out of diaries. There were names that were blacked out. Player Bridges McMahon, our producer, spent a lot of time in the archive looking at things and noticed this. And it gave us this sense that Polly left the letters that Polly wrote to doctors asking for help, asking for testosterone and other treatment, left those in a file. And Polly left Irene's letters, as Julie said, and including the carbon copies of what Polly wrote to Irene. We felt that it was there and and agreed with Rosalind that Polly's non-binary status, whatever you want to say, whether or not Polly was non-binary or trans or whatever, was very important to how innovative and creative Polly was as a thinker as Rosalind said, just not constrained by arbitrary boundaries. The final turn in Polly's life is when Polly goes to the seminary to become an Episcopal priest. I think it's Polly's grandniece who talks about what a surprise that was to the family. And it does seem like a big surprise. On the other hand, Polly talks about how after Rini's death, it's one reason why Polly made that decision. And it also seems rather logical in a weird way, given the course of Polly's life, the overall arc of Polly's life. 
Assume you didn't know how the ending of Polly's life turned out and that Polly went this way. Do you think that's a surprising decision or a logical one? I don't find it that surprising in many ways. In the very academic and activist circles that Polly traveled in, people were surprised because it's like, oh, the church, like that's so like, you know, that's not like the cool activist thing to do necessarily, but it fits with who Polly was throughout life. I mean, certainly being Episcopal and even an Episcopal activist was part of what brought Rini and Polly together, not just their common love of the church, but also actually fighting for women's rights within the Episcopal church, which was a big sort of mutual cause of theirs. Polly was spiritual from childhood, so that's kind of the way to reconnect with Aunt Pauline, whose death was also really painful for Polly. So I kind of feel like and just in a lot of public discourse, like religion sometimes gets short shrift. It's, it's really important to a lot of Americans and Polly fits in with, with the tradition of that. You know, Martin Luther King's activism and spirituality were intertwined his whole life. What better place to bring together the strands of everything that Polly's been working for, especially after the 10 year battle at Brandeis. It was a way to find some peace. Polly was also a poet. And some of Polly's poems are featured prominently, including the ending itself, which is a recitation of one of Polly's poems. What do you think poetry offered Polly that other forms of expression didn't or couldn't? Polly Murray thought of Polly as a poet first and everything else later. Writing, communicating meant everything to Polly. In some ways, the turn towards spirituality also gave Polly an opportunity to really lean into the autobiography, to writing that memoir, to finishing it, which was very important to Polly. Polly wanted to communicate with other people and did so throughout life. If there is anyone who worked on the film or collaborated with you uh, working on the film that you would like to thank. Our amazing producer, Talia Bridges McMahon, did an extraordinary job. Our editor, Sinque Northern, our artist, Diana Ijeda, our archive producers, Claudia Lopez, even our production assistant who did an extraordinary job in the summer and found one of the pieces of audio that we really relied on in this film, Amira Williams, who's now at journalism school, but boy, she did a great job for us. Yeah, and I'll add the composer, Jeanique Bonton, oh, yes. who just had a really hard assignment with this film because there are so many moods and often we're switching, moving pretty sharply from something that's really joyous and fun to something that's devastating and searing and vice versa. And Jeanique did such a great job evoking so many different feelings and yet giving a sense that you were watching a coherent story. What's incredible is that this team really held it together during the pandemic. We were on opposite coasts in some cases, and yet we were really able to stay together as a team and, and to work on this. Really grateful to all of them. Please pass on our congratulations to all those people you mentioned. They all contributed mightily to the film. Betsy and Julie, really congratulations on the film. Thanks so much. And as Polly says, don't get mad, get smart. You made an incredibly smart and brilliant film. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for good questions. Bye-bye. Can each of you give us a hidden gem, one documentary that you feel maybe doesn't get the attention it deserves? Theremin, an electronic odyssey. 
I love that film. And it was just so wacky about that weird instrument. And it was a crazy story. And there was espionage and murder and love of music and the Beach Boys. It was just so cool. I am a big fan of a film called First Cousin Once Removed by Alan Berliner, a, a really personal, first person, kind of an unusual, you know, this isn't something giving you information, it's really telling you about someone, but also a connection. It just makes me think about life and human relations. So everyone should check it out.